You can remember that I shared that there was two purposes. There was an immediate purpose for the tabernacle, and then there was an ultimate purpose for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was called the place of meeting, and the tent of meeting, it was a place where God met with the people, and the people met with God to worship. And you remember, not only was it a place of worship, it was a place of witness. It was a witness to the presence of God, a witness to the purity of God, a witness to the protection of God, and ultimately a witness to the provision of God, which was the immediate purpose to be a place of worship and witness. And then I spoke to you about the ultimate purpose and how the ultimate purpose was to be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, that when he came, he would be the perfect tabernacle, And if you remember, he would be the perfect priest. And we looked at that from Hebrews. So moving on from that, tonight we want to have a look at the pattern of the tabernacle. And I'll point you to Exodus 25 and verse number 8. Exodus 25 and verse number 8. And, uh, well, if you look at verse number 1, and we've looked at this before, but we'll we'll keep coming back to this through the study. But if you look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 25, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, now we move to verse 8. We've set the context that this is the Lord speaking to Moses. Verse 8, And the Lord says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. So again, the, the, the concept is that this construction, uh, the measurements, the materials, everything in it is given by God. This is God's design. And he has given it, Moses has built it, the people have built it together, but it's come from God and it's patterned from the tabernacle in the heavenlies. And it's really pointing to that tabernacle, not made by hands like this one, but the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the book of Hebrews comes in. That's why I keep saying to you that Leviticus and Hebrews, end of Exodus, Leviticus and Hebrews are all intertwined. And you can't really understand Hebrews unless you get into Leviticus and look at this stuff. And that's why we're doing this study and working through it. So we're going to see God's design, God's pattern uh, of the tabernacle. And we'll see that nothing is, you know, it's, it's not just randomized. You know, what, what do they have? Let's build something. No, there's so much more in it because it's God's order and it's God's design. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to have a look at the pattern of the tabernacle. Now, first thing I, w- I want to look at is before we, we look at the, the measurements, because this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at the measurements first of all, then we're going to have a look at the materials. First thing we want to do is we want to work out these measurements because there's no point in me giving you these measurements, which are all in cubits uh, here. Um, but if you don't know what a cubit is, it doesn't really going to make much sense to you, is it? So, a cubit, how long is a cubit? That good old question. Um, because they weren't working in metres or feet, imperial or metric then. Cubits was the measurement. Cubit was the measurement that was used by the Egyptians to build the pyramids. And if you want a picture of perfect design, look at the pyramids. You know, there's this misconception that those in antiquity, and you go back in history, were stupid and actually, we're, we're the evolved people. Actually, we're the stupid people. Yeah. Now, we've got technology and stuff, and that aids us greatly, assists us. But these guys, and the stuff they did, and the buildings that they built, and how they built it, and the precision 
which they built is just amazing. But the measurement that they, the common measurement they would use was um, the uh, cubit. Question is, when you're talking about a cubit, do we mean a long cubit or a short cubit? Because there's two types of cubit measurement. Um, and here's a little slide on it. But basically, there's, um, we're going to take the approach that the short cubit was used. And uh, that's the common position. And the short a cubit, basically, give or take, is from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. That's the kind of uh, measurement. It's approximately 18 inches, give or take. That's what a cubit is. So when you read in, 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 in here, we talk about these measurements, and I give you cubits, a cubit is roughly 18 inches. So 100 cubits, we're going to have a look at this, is approximately 150 feet, or if you prefer, in meters like me, 46 meters. 20 cubits, which we're going to have a look at the gate, it was 20 cubits long. That's 30 foot or 9 meters long. 10 cubits, obviously half of that, 4.5 meters, 15 feet. So when we're looking at the tabernacle, we're dealing with cubits. That's how it's, it's given out and the measurement that they used. And that's what we're thinking about, your, your uh, elbow to the tip of your thing, about, about 18 inches, give or take. Um, so here we have the, the tabernacle and, and the... the um, perimeter around it. The tabernacle itself is really, really this part. This is the tent bit. This is the perimeter that goes all around it. These are some of the bits of furniture and stuff. We're going to have a look at the furniture later, but um, this afternoon we're primarily going to focus on the perimeter, uh, the gate that they came in, and then the, the coverings of, of the tabernacle. So to, in, in terms of measurement, and I'll have to look at this screen, excuse me, but in terms of measurement, uh, what we've got there in terms of the length of it, um, 150 feet long so se and 75 feet wide. 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. Not massive, not massive by any stretch of imagination. Um, this was the, the court of the tabernacle and then this is the, the tent of the tabernacle. This is the, the tent bit. And again, its uh, structure is even smaller. Um, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide. So 45 long, 15 feet wide. And this is split into two parts. You can just about see a little curtain there. And one part is called the holy place. And this little uh, section at the back is called the most holy. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the pillar of smoke, the Shekinah glory of God was. There was a curtain there. And I've talked about this. The high priest could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur. The other priests could go into this bit, but they couldn't go in to the other bit. And actually, the bit that contained God is a 15-foot square room, which is, which is mad when you think about all those other buildings that I showed you about the world's religions and how they did. But the place that contained the presence of God was a 15-foot square room. Downstairs toilet, basically. Tiny. Tiny. So you have the, the, the holy place and the most holy place. You have the court, and the court is surrounded by this uh, perimeter fence. So each... Um, and again, you have to remember that this design is, 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 is amazing because it had to be packed up and moved during the wilderness wanderings. And uh, it's said that the brazen laver, or the, uh, the place of sacrifice, um, could fit the other bits in and they picked it up and they would move 
the um, pillars, 60 of them all around, and then you have the white linen hung between them. It's just a, 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 like a curtain hung all the way round, unbroken from the gate all the way round that marked the perimeter of it. Um, five cubits high. So how, how high is five cubits? No, double it. No, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. You're back. Well done, you. well done. You've made up for this morning's wrong answer. That's what it was. Okay, we'll get you. We'll get your lolly and a sticker. <laughs> Enough. Right. So, this is this is fine in and all around. Um, so, in terms of size, basically, what I'm saying here is not very big. It's not a big structure. Here's some comparisons of, of the, this, the different temples. This is uh, Herod's temple. And of course he had a big extension and Herod was on a massive project to show off. This is Solomon's temple in relation about half the size of Herod's temple. Um, you go back again um, to uh, the tabernacle and you'll see in terms of relational size, small. This one is Ezekiel's temple and its measurements. This is the millennial temple. And it's the biggest of all, it compared to all the rest. But there's a comparison um, between Herod's Temple and an American football field. This is from an American website. But again, you can, you can get the kind of size. That's, that's pretty big. This is, is tiny, but this was God's design in the wilderness all those years ago. So when we're looking at the measurements of it, we're saying that it's not really uh, very big in terms of its kind of structure. You know, we're 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, a little fence of five uh, cubits high, uh, um, seven and a half feet high. Nothing much to look at. So the measurements, we've laid them out for you. Nothing too much to, to look at there, really. Um, we could go into some of the detail in the numbers, but I don't think it's, it's prescriptive for the time that we have. What we want to do look at is we want to have a look at some of the materials of the tabernacles. Um, well, let, let's, let's go back to, let's go to uh, this one. Yeah. So let's think about this perimeter fence. Um, the materials used for this was linen, linen, white linen. So I talked to you, I think, last Sunday or the Sunday before when I pointed to you to what linen, white linen was representative of. What do you think of when you think of, number one, the color white, but also righteousness, right? Bang on, absolutely righteousness. So you get in Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. And the scripture says, And to her it was granted she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen and is the righteousness of the saints. Linen and white linen in scripture is, is pictured alongside righteousness. And you get that. You know, this is why the wedding dress is white. You know, there's a purity there um, in that picture. So that's, that's what the perimeter was. And so why, why, why do you think then white particularly? Um, why, why have a colour... Associate. Why did God? Because this is God's design. Why did God, do you think, have a color that was associated with righteousness that was to mark the perimeter? And remember, there's no way in the perimeter; it's closed. Right, right. And so that is a barrier between us and God. That our righteousness, self-righteousness, you can't come your own way. And actually, there's a, there's a, there's a, that's the problem, isn't it? God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God is pure. 
Are we pure? No, I wish. We still get sin, right? So this is not, you know, it's, 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 it's functional because it segregates, but the segregation shows something and the people would have picked up on this, that this place inside it was righteous and holy because it was God's place. So the people are sitting outside this and they have this perimeter and it's a mindful thing, you know, very symbolic Judaism. The language is symbolic, the, the people and the way they think is a lot of symbology. So, you know, they're sitting outside this and God's presence is there. It's a reminder that indeed that this white perimeter pictures the righteousness and they're not righteous. And the only way in is the gate. The gate. This gate is on the east side. And again, there's association with the the east when you look at the tabernacle. But let me get back to the gate. So there's this perimeter all around except for this part, which is the gate by which people enter in. Now remember that I'm pointing to Christ all the time here. And then when Christ is speaking and teaching, he's teaching Jews who are distinctly familiar with Old Testament scripture and the tabernacle and the fact that there was only one way in, one gate. Now Jesus himself, what does he say? John 10, 9. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Now, here we have this, this gate. Turn to Exodus 27. Let's, let's have a look at the um, instructions for it. Exodus 27, verse 13. Exodus 27, verse 13. So there's only one way to enter in here. And it says, In the breadth of the court on the east side, eastward shall be 50 cubits. The hangings of one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits. And their pillars three, and their sockets three. On the other side shall be hanging 15 cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. So this is the picture that we're getting for the gate here, for the um, entranceway and this side of the tabernacle uh, proper. Now, when we get into the tabernacle, and, and I, I, this is important that we set this out now, because I've said this before, and I'll say it again, that numbers are important in Scripture, but not all numbers are important. So numbers are important in Scripture, but not every number is important. So, let me get back to uh, this one. Let me, let me point you to some numbers in Scripture. Now, the red ones are the, are the more important ones. And you can, you can go, go and have a look and go down. So, you, know, you can see three. I think three is the most important number, if I'm honest. The, the more I look, the more I say three. In, in connection with God, the Trinity. We uh, sung this, the, the, the hymn this morning, Holy, Holy, Holy. And we see that in Scripture, holy, holy, holy. Um, and I've told you before, that's a Hebrew idiom, that when, when you say, say something three times, it points to it being eternal. Point to God, the number three. And, of course, we see three in, in, in so many things. But uh, four, we're going to have a look at that. It's the number of creation on the earth. Six, we know that's the number of man, number of beast. Number seven, number of perfection, completeness, maturity. Number 10 is the number of law or government. 
Number 12 is the number of divine government. So we see that with the apostles. Number 40 is the number of trial, testing, probation. So that's why you see a lot of 40s in scripture. And here's the unique thing. You look at the Bible and you look at those different authors across thousands of years, across different continents, across different languages, and they all keep these numbers unified. They're all using them. It's, it's, it's supernatural. There's no doubt about it. So when we get into uh, the tabernacle, we're going to see some of these numbers repeat a lot. And when we're presented with the gate, um, we are dealing with the number four. Now, I've said four is the number of uh, creation. Anybody any idea why we'd point to number four being the number of creation or the number of the earth? Have a guess. fourth day exactly because that's when the uh, material creation was completed and ready to be filled what else when you're navigating what do you have compass, compass. Four, four points of the compass north south east west west um, four elements earth air fire water we've got the four kingdoms of the earth animal you know you list from school animal festival mineral human so you'll see these, these four, four points as, as the number of creation. When you get to the gate, turn to Exodus 27, verse number 16. <clears throat> Excuse me. Exodus 27, verse 16. And for the gate of the court shall be a hanging, so that's a kind of a picture of this, of 20 cubits. So it's 20 cubits uh, long. Uh, of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen, wrought with needlework, and their pillars shall be four, and their sockets shall be four. So here we get to the gate, and uh, we're looking at this, and straight away we see the number four is repeated there. So there's four pillars, there's four sockets, there's four colors that are talked about there. And actually, if you really want to get into it and do the numbers, it's 20 cubits long by five cubits high. Five fours is 20. So the number four is even there. But, so four pillars, four sockets, four colors. Um, so the number four is here. And, and speaking about creation, it's the number of the earth. Now this is very interesting to me because I want to show you Jesus here. And Jesus said, I'm the, what, the way, truth, and the life. No man cometh but Father but man. He says, I'm the door. So you look at this perimeter of, of righteousness, that there is no way in. And there's only one way in, which is the door, which is covered in fours. So what does that point to me? It points to me that the way in, in Jesus, in this picture in Jesus, is for all. It's universal. Now, not everybody goes in, but it is for all. I absolutely believe that. I believe that Christ died for all. That doesn't make me a universalist, that everybody's saved. But I believe that he died for all, but not all except. That the pardon is available. But you have to choose that pardon. So even at the gate here, you see these number, number fours. And so, you know, we want to go a little, even a bit further than that. There was four colors, right? Look at verse 16, Exodus 28. You've got blue, purple, scarlet, and then fine twined linen, white. 
So let's, let's look at the colours. Now, there's four colours, but let's, let's look at them and think about them. So purple, what is purple scripturally? What do you associate with the colour purple? Royalty, well done. Royalty. Purple is always the colour of royalty. What about scarlet? Sin. Red, scarlet. Um, Psalm 22, verse 6 says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised of people. That word worm in the Hebrew is Taleb. This is the, the uh, scarlet worm, as it's called, the cochineal worm, that, to produce that color. They had to crush this uh, worm, this bug. It was very expensive, this color. That's why uh, Lydia is a seller, um, also involved in this sort of stuff, this same principle. But this worm, this scarlet worm, um, refers to the insect, the cochineal. The females produced a substance which had a bright scarlet dye which could be extracted. So the, the scarlet worm was the chief source of scarlet and crimson dyes in antiquity. Um, so it was closely identified um, with, with this word, tola. Um, reads scarlet or crimson in the Old Testament, a translation of this. This speaks of suffering and service. You know, this is what we're talking about. She had blood. Uh, what other colors? Blue. What do, you, what do you associate with the color blue? Anything? Mm. Heaven. Heaven. And then white, we've already looked at. We've looked at righteousness. So you've got these four colors here. Completely white all around, by God's instruction, by God's design. You come to the, the only way in, and you have the number four there, but you have these four colors, and you think, well, why are these colors? Did God just like that color? Or was he showing something? Now, you look at the, the colors. We looked at purple. What's that royalty? Now, let's think about the four gospels. Matthew. It's the gospel of what? What's Matthew the book of? The presentation of the king. King. When you get to uh, Mark, it's the servant of the Lord speaking about his, his service. Could that point to this scarlet? Possibly. You look to uh, Luke as the son of man. That points to his righteousness as the one who was sinless. You think about blue in heaven. Book of John. What's that all about? The deity, the deity of Christ. So again, you know, you could say, well, these are just loose connections, but I, I don't think so. I think it's pointing, pointing, pointing all the time. You know, we, we, spit, we looked um, before at how they, how they actually even marched in the wilderness. And the 12 were split up into uh, four threes. And each one of those set of tribes had a front tribe that would have a banner. Do you remember this? And they would, they would have their banner and they would walk and Judah... Um, and his group of three, that was the banner. He had the other banners, and each one of them was the um, picture of the, of the gospel. Judah, the, the lion. He had the ox. He had the eagle. You think, are these just coincidentals? Uh, absolutely not. This is God's design, and he's showing something. So if you look at this, it's this gate, and Jesus says, Jesus said, I'm the door. I'm the way. If you want to meet the Father, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes but by me. So when you're in the tabernacle and you're looking at it, you've got the surrounded perimeter. The only way is in through the door. And as you go in through the door, you're seeing these colors that are pointing to something. You're seeing the number four that's pointing to this universal aspect of the way. When Jesus said, I am the way, he didn't just say, I am the way for those that I have chosen. He said, I am the way for all that will come unto me. And again, not everybody comes. And we know that God has to draw. I'm not denying that. But I want you to see that this is, this is the start of what we're seeing. We're going to see Christ. Now, uh, when we get, and let's move on now. We, we come in, the tent here, we're going to see, has its own uh, materials on it. Now, we're going to have a look at these pieces and stuff when, when we get there. But we want to have a look at the, at the tent. Now, let me get this one for you. So when we get to the, the tent, the coverings over the tent have four coverings. Again, is that, is that God just saying, I wonder how many I'll put on there? No, there's something in there. There has to be. It's not just four. Why not just do one? Why not just do two? Why four? And we're going to see these four have their own colors. Now, inside, the, the, the actual box, it almost looks a bit like a container, doesn't it? Uh, it's gold-plated gold um, acacia wood built on the sides and inside you know there's there's something spectacular going on but the outside there's nothing much really in terms of spectacular so we're going to go through the, these these coverings and look at them one by one uh turn to exodus 26 and then verse number one exodus 26 and verse number one says moreover thou shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet with cherubims of cunning work shalt thou make them. The cherubims, again, this part of the angelic order. So the instructions here is to, to make this curtain beautifully embroidered, gold, purple, blue, and scarlet. So again, these colors in here, you know, they're, kind of, they're not just random colors. These are God's colors. Um, and then the cherubim were to be depicted on them so that when you were inside this initial curtain that came over the top, you would see this and look upon this beautiful scene of, of these colors pointing and picturing and taking your mind to these things of God and then the cherubims over. And this sheet covered the tabernacle. So this is the first one. So you have this basically um, uh, like fence, fence panels that are put around, formed, and then they put the curtain over it. And the first one was a linen covering. Then the second one, if you look at verse 7 there. Second one of uh, Exodus 26, verse 7, is uh, goat hair, black goat hair. Verse 7, And thou shalt make a curtain of goat's hair to be a covering upon the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shalt thou make. So this was made up from 11 individual goat hair curtains. These measured 30 cubits long by 4 cubits wide. And the covering was divided into two sections. That's what it says. The front half being made of 6. The back was made of 5 of these curtains of, of goat's uh, hair. And then they were kind of connected in and, and looped in. So, I mean, you can, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but the next color is red. And red we associate with blood, blood. Now, scripture, black, 
darkness is picturing really. So you, you, you wonder why, well, why has God put the dark one there? And then over the top of it, he's put the red. Could he be pointing to something of the covering of the blood? I think possibly he is. But you have this, this goat's hair and you have two sides to it. It's going to be separated into two. Now for the Jewish mind, when they're thinking about goats and sacrifice, and this is given in Leviticus, you're going to point to uh, the most holy day of the year. Remember I said to you that the high priest could go into the holy place, this 15 square cubit little, little box where the presence of God was. That was in the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And then, you know, you know the story. What happens there, that there's two goats that are used in that offering process, right? One is uh, offered to God. The other goes out into the wilderness, the scapegoat. The goat that's slain, you will find when we get there, we're going to look at this so we get the offerings and, and the feasts. The, the blood of that lamb is sprinkled. It's offered, basically. One or the, not the lamb, the goat that's slain. The other goat, the high priest lays his hand on. This is called the scapegoat. He confessed the sins of the people, and then it was let go into the wilderness. So this process in the Day of Atonement involving these two goats is a sacrifice. One is slain, and the blood is, 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 is uh, imparted on the bits of the tabernacle and, and sprinkled. And of course, this is the concept that God is teaching from Genesis all the way through. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. There's a penalty to sin, and it's a serious one. So one goat goes to pay for that. The other goat is sent off into the wilderness. And the picture there for the Jewish mind is that God is not only uh, uh, dealing with the sin, covering the sin, but he's also forgetting about the sin. And these two animals go their separate way. So there's a twofold significance that God desires to remove sin from his people, not just the guilt of sin, but also the memory of sin. And this is the, the picture. Now, of course, in the tabernacle scenario, that had to happen every year because it was a covering. It was picturing something that was coming, that the Lord Jesus Christ would perfectly fulfill both of these things and all of these things in him. That's what Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 10. When you're starting to read about the, the tabernacle in Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, 10 says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So, you know, you, you, to a, a Jewish mind, reading Hebrews and knowing about the Old Testament sacrifices and how it rolled and it never covered and every year it had to happen again. We've been blown away by this statement, offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Paul repeated this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So even in the tabernacle, you're getting these pictures of sacrifice, royalty, divinity. But yet this concept of shed blood of sacrifice. And that brings us to the third cover in there. Look at verse 14 of Exodus 26. This is the ram-skinned, uh, ram-skinned dyed red. Verse 14, Exodus 26. And thou shalt make a covering for the tent of ramskins, dyed red. So again, now we're dealing with the ramskins, dyed red. So now we've, we've changed animal 
We've gone from goat to what? Goat to what? Yes, shape. You know any other pictures of goats and shapes in the New Testament? Yeah, there's a separation, right? The people of God are shape. The lost are what? Goats. Goats. So this picture of, of sin, the black color, the goat's hair, you know, this picture of the two goats and the young Kippur, it's a picture of sin. But now we get to something else. We've changed the animal, we've gone to the sheep. And now the skin is, is laid. And this is the blood, and the blood covers. This reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ, the shedding of his blood. The rams had to die before the skins could be obtained. And these red skins covered the entirety of the tabernacle. So much so that you wouldn't be able to see the goat's hair underneath. Covered. We think about Jesus and his precious blood. Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He brought as a lamb to the slaughter, sheep before his shearers dumb, so he opened not his mouth. 1 Peter 1, 18, for as much as you know, you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation or manner of life received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter tells us it's the blood of the Messiah and the Messiah alone that redeems us and removes sin once for all, forever. If you look and you know from Scripture that the ram is used as a substitute for Isaac, Genesis 22, we know that. Used by Aaron and his sons when they were consecrated for the priesthood. John the Baptist, when he arrived on the scene, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So even here in the tabernacle, you have, a, you have this picture of these layers, and each one representing something, and you have the, 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 the red covering over uh, the goat's hair and the blacks. To me, there's pictures in that. There absolutely is. The outer covering, and this kind of stretched across the top, um, the King James registers it as badger skins, and I think probably uh, that's not a great uh, translation of that word, takesh, in the Hebrew. Personally, I believe you study this out a little bit more. This is more than likely, and bear with me before you laugh at me, because I know they're in the desert, <laughs> a dolphin or porpoise. And it's very hard to, to tie down that Hebrew word particularly. But that's what it, it lends itself more to. And you say, well, where did they get porpoise skins? Actually, history reveals that the Egyptians um, had, a, had a, a, a roaring trade on, on porpoise skins. That they used to come down the Nile as well. And they would use them as leather for their shoes and stuff. And they used their skins particularly because... They had one amazing quality. What do you think the quality was? Waterproof. Waterproof. <laughs> Waterproof. Waterproof. So where did they get them from? Remember, where they are, they're not that far from the Nile, and they're not that far from the Red Sea. They've come through the Red Sea as well. They've brought stuff with them for Egypt. 
that's going to be used in some of the other items. You're going to see when we get to the uh, brazen laver, that bowl of water, it's used by what they, they brought from Egypt in terms of the, 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 the polished brass, copper. They used that for mirrors, ancient day mirrors, and they brought it with them. So more than likely, I think it points to that. But again, um, whatever animal it is, whatever it is, what I want to say is that this covering wasn't anything special to look at. So when you looked at this, let me get back one more. You didn't see these colors underneath. All you seen was this hide of some random animal that wasn't particularly related to any of the sacrifices. It wasn't goat, it wasn't a lamb, but it's covered over. And actually, when you look at this tabernacle structure, as opposed to what we've seen with all the great temples that I took you to, that all the beauty in all of those places, Mecca, Myanmar, St. Peter's Basilica. All the beauty is what? Inside or out? Outside. Inside they are dead. They want to show the world. But in this design, God's design, all the beauty is covered up. So that when you look at this, if you were to walk past this, without all these people gathered around it and it was in the wilderness you would just think it's a bunch of hippies with a tent in a commune and you'd walk on past it because it looked like nothing I want you to get that it looked like nothing but when you get into this place there's beauty inside so now I want to point you to Jesus again what do we know about our Lord what does Isaiah tell us about him Nothing to look upon. Where was the beauty? Inside. Inside. And that's how God works. It's what inside that counts. And this is the story of David, isn't it? This is the story of Christ. Let me read you Isaiah 53, verse number 1 to 3. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For ye shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid it as were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Tabernacle. There's nothing to look at. But when you get into it, you're going to see beauty. It's a picture of Christ. The one who came as a humble carpenter and walked amongst us. Humility. Do you remember the video that I showed you? How Christ in his incarnation differed from all the other pagan religions, all the other God stories. Because when those gods came down, they disguised themselves. They weren't being humble. But Christ was humility personified. 
This is what the tabernacle is. It's just a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who's the way, the truth and the life. Nothing to look at from the outside in. But when you get inside, you're going to see such beauty. And is that not pictorial of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God in flesh, God with us. So there's symbolism everywhere. And again, is it coincidence, these fours? Is it coincidence, these colors? Is it coincidence, these skins? You know, am I making huge leaps here? Or is God really showing something in the wilderness all those years ago? That his people who were lost in their own sin, wandering, yet in the midst of the very presence of God was there. More so, the Lord Jesus Christ was there showing the way to God, the way of redemption. It's beautiful. Now, one little thing I want to I finish with. I want to bring a little bit of application because you, sometimes when you get into these things, you can make it all study. And what, so what's the application that I want to pull us in? Well, I said at the start that God gave the commandment, right? This is God's word. But God didn't build it for them. God gave the commandment. He gave the pattern. The people had to obey. Not only did the people have to obey, they had to respond to build it. They had to provide. Now God is sovereignly over this. He's superintending this. But the concept is that God gives it to Moses. Moses gives it to the people. They have to action their will to build it. They, they could have said, you know what? No, we don't want to worship you. We don't need this. We'll not do it. So there had to be a willingness to do it. And then there had to be a willingness to give. But if you turn to Exodus 25 and verse 2, God gave the pattern. The people um, provided the materials. Now, under the hand of God, obviously, but Exodus 25 verse 2 says, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye he shall take my offering. So the instruction here is that toward, to make this tabernacle, um, and this is the, the God's instructions, that the people had to be willing, number one, to do the work. Number two, they had to be willing to provide the materials for the work. They had to give an offering. Now, notice it's willingly. Not forced. This is willingly. And the people willingly did. And so is it any different for us today? I don't think so. I think we have to be willing to give ourselves. Romans 12.1 I beseech you therefore brethren. By the mercies of God. I don't know how many times I say this as a pastor. Even to myself. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy acceptable unto God. Paul says you know you've got to have a will. And you've got to exercise it towards God. And then we've got to bring our gifts Willingly. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. Every man according as he purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. We can see the parallels from what God has said to his people, his called out people, his ecclesia of the Old Testament, if you like, in the wilderness. That they had to be willing to build and they had to be willing to give. And ultimately the attitude that surrounded that had to be one 
of willingness and cheerfulness to be part of that work. And I don't think it's any different today. We're not building a tabernacle, but we are in the Lord's work. And the call is the same, I believe. That we're called to be about his work, whatever that is. And we're called to give to that work. Materially, prayerfully, our time. Which is probably the biggest give, I would say. In terms of today's society. Time is, is, is a precious treasure of which there are many thieves. And the Lord wants us to give and give will, willingly. So we look at this tabernacle and we can see some application for us for today. But ultimately, when we start and we've just looked at the pattern of the tabernacle, I've showed you that you know there's a righteous uh, offense that cannot be passed other than the gate. The gate itself has these fours in it, has these four colors. Picture the four gospels. Picture the qualities and characters of Christ. Christ himself says, I am the door. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I can't stress this enough. He is talking about the tabernacle pattern. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Because the Jewish mind was what? How did somebody come before the Father? Through the temple. Through the sacrifices. Through the high priest. Jesus says, I am it. I am it. So we'll leave it there for tonight.